try to run it. Hey guys, welcome. Uh, glad you're here. We are going to start, and uh, we are doing a series called Jesus Encounter, which is a good one, right? Anytime you get a chance to talk about Jesus, it's a good thing, right? So we're looking at different aspects of, um, I'm sorry, I'm just, we, we have a whole thing going on here, so I, I like, my, the, anyway, I won't get into that. But anyway, we're looking at Jesus. And so it's Christmas time, and we're going to kind of move into, we're going to, uh, next couple weeks, going to talk about Jesus as Lord at his birth. But today I want to talk to you about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And while that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of us, that seems so like far in the distance or seems like so uh, dissociative. Hey, Elliot, where's Elliot? We have a lot of crazy stuff going on this morning. There must be something good in this message for y'all. So, uh, oh, can you hit the lights? The, the, Take it off purple. So I know there's something good. And so we're talking about Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. And uh, one of the prophecies about Jesus' birth comes from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 9, now to kind of put this in context and to put this in relevance, Isaiah's prophecy, the book of Isaiah was written, everybody say it with me, 700 years before Jesus. So Isaiah is called the evangelist of the Old Testament. He writes more about the coming Messiah than any other prophet. And it's so uh, crazy because the book of Isaiah and the book of Daniel, they wonder if it was written after the fact because both of those books are so accurate in their descriptions. And one of the accurate descriptions of the coming Messiah and who he would be is found in Isaiah chapter 9. And so I'm not going to read all of the, but I want to briefly highlight the opening verses of this, and then we're going to kind of go into uh, the, the basis of, or the sum of the message that I wanted to get to. In the opening verses of Isaiah, it talks about, chapter 9, it talks about the light has come. Those who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So it's talking about when, the, when Christ comes, what this is going to look like. Jesus comes to bring light. It tells us that that light will bring joy. And then it tells us that that light not only will bring joy to all people, but that light was going to bring harvest and is going to bring increase. And that the light will shatter enemies, lift burdens, and oppressions will be broken, and peace will come. That's good news, isn't it? Yes, two of you. That's okay. We're good. We're, we're, on, we're on track here. And it says, how is this going to happen? And it tells us in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. What government? The government of heaven. Jesus came with the full reigning government of heaven. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. He will reign upon David's throne and he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forever. And, and why did this happen? Because the Lord was passionate for it to happen. The zeal of God wanted it to happen. The passion of God. It was God's passion to not leave man in darkness. It's God's passion to not leave mankind under the burden and the weight of sin and to not leave us in a place of oppression and bondage. That's his desire. And so he sent Jesus. Jesus came forth from the Father to do just those things. 
And it's important to understand this because we, we think of these things in abstract terms. Well, he broke oppression, he forgave sin, he did all that stuff. But yet there are Christians today who may be forgiven and they may be in Christ, but yet there's a lot of oppression on their lives. Well, why is that? Because they've not learned to appropriate the inheritance that's been given to them. There is an appropriation that Jesus has given us a power. He's given us an ability to go free from oppression. But if we do not know, learn how to appropriate our inheritance, it stays in the bank. Christian, it's Ephesians chapter 1, that you would know what is rightfully yours. That you would not only know what is yours, but you would learn what to do with what is rightfully yours. The inheritance belongs to the believer. The promises are there. It tells us a child is born. So from heaven, from earth's perspective, he's just another child being born into the world. But from heaven's perspective, he is a son that is given. He is the eternal son given. Eternity came into time to redeem those who are under law, under a curse and under sin. And there's a lot of things that Jesus' birth fulfilled, but there are three things that he fulfilled very specifically. He fulfilled the role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And this is how God interacts with mankind. He interacts with us on these three terms, prophetically, priestly, and kingly. That's how he interacts with us, okay? And so Jesus fulfilled them. What does it mean? So he came to instruct. That's what the prophet does. He speaks forth, instructs, declares. The minister is the priest. He came to minister. And then he also came to establish rulership or dominion, and show us the way. Next slide. The prophet, he came to instruct. So 221 times in the Old Testament, the prophet said, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. Jesus comes speaking an entirely different language. He would say, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And then he uses another phrase, says, I tell you the truth. Not, you've heard, he says, I tell you the truth. Fifty times in the book of John alone, he uses the phrase, I tell you the truth. And that's why the people, when they listened to Jesus talk, they said, this one speaks like nobody else. He speaks as if he's the one with the actual authority. And not as someone who's learned, he actually seems to be the one who has the power. And that's the point. He came not only to, to uh, fulfill the role of the prophet, but in doing so, he came to reveal the meaning of the prophets, their writings, and the mysteries of the will of God in the kingdom. The Bible speaks about this very, very clearly. It tells us in Romans. It tells us in Colossians. It tells us twice in Ephesians that Jesus came to bring understanding into the prophetic writings. Jesus came to bring understanding into the will and the heart of God, and that Jesus came to bring understanding and insight into his kingdom. There's a kingdom. As a Christian, you're not just sitting around in God's waiting room waiting to go to heaven. You are sons and daughters and heirs of this life and in the world to come, and you are part of a kingdom, a dominion. And that dominion, the rulership and the reign and the authority belongs to the believer. It's been given to you in this life. I watch a lot of, uh, I take in a lot of information and just this week, I was watching a bunch of stuff and, and uh, reading some of the comments that people post, and a lot, of the, a lot of people are Christians, and they say certain things, and then you have the unbelievers saying other things, and they're saying, well, if God's so good, then why is, why, why is there such injustice in the world? Or if God's so good, then why is there evil in the world? Well, the first concept is you don't understand evil or the origin of evil. Evil does not originate with God. Sin is in the world. Sin has infected the entire human race. We are infected by sin. Humanity 
Time and space, the world that we live in is fallen. God created it a certain way. He gave the authority to mankind, and mankind gave away that authority. Gave it away to a fallen angel called Lucifer, better known as Satan. Okay? And so Satan is the god of this world. So what happens is, is that this world that we live in is full of malevolence. It's a world of tragedy. Can we agree? Things happen, and we don't know why. Good thing, bad things happen to good people, and we don't know why, because the world's fallen. We're fallen people that do fallen things to ourselves and to each other. We're fallen people who create fallen systems that affect hardship and harm on another. So that's part of the problem. And then the other understanding is this idea of malevolence. Malevolence is an act of selfishness done, or an act of harm done to another to benefit self. So when mankind says they're good, we're not good. Malevolence testifies to us that no one is good. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So if you think good works save you, good works don't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Faith in him is what saves us. Faith in ourselves saves nothing. Malevolence testifies to you that you're not good. Every single person in this room, myself included, has done a selfish act and has done an act of harm against another person, whether it's words, whether it's deeds. There's lots of things that we have done to harm someone else in order to benefit us. That testifies to you that you are sinful. You say, I'm a good person. You're filled with malevolence. You do good things every now and then, but you're lost and you're broken, and you're fallen, and you need to be saved, and you need a new nature. And the Bible promises a new nature through Jesus. Not self-health books and other things of that nature, but evil, evil does not originate with God, and God is not absent from man's condition. This is another important understanding. God has empowered a people called the church to go forth in his name with his power and bring redemption to the world. So if there's no issue, God cannot be blamed. You can point the finger at the church all day long, but you cannot point the finger at Jesus. Sovereignty and dominion of the earth was given to Adam in the garden. Adam lost it. Jesus came, gave it back, and now hands the keys to the church and says, go forth in my name. We have the power. We have the authority. We have the wherewithal. That's why we pray for the sick. We don't ask for healing here at Elevate. And do you know why we don't ask for healing? Because he's already paid the price for healing, and he's endowed us with the Holy Spirit. This is why healing prayer doesn't work in a lot of circles, because we're asking God for something that he's already done. He's already done it, and he's given you the power and the anointing, and he tells you to heal the sick. That's what it tells us. You want to read that when he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, and cleanse lepers? He's not asking you. He's commanding you. It's a direct command. He's telling you to do something that you by nature cannot do. And he's forcing you to go, well, how is that supposed to happen? Because that's the question. How is it supposed to happen? By communion and partnership with his spirit. That's how it's supposed to happen. The, earth is in, the church is endowed to be the world changers. We are the creators of culture, and we are the transformational people that are sent to the earth, the salt of the earth, to transform the earth. We are the light of the world. Is that not true? Is that not what he said? So when we look at evil and we look at the malevolence and we look at the systematic injustices, we cannot point the finger at God because the root of the problem is us and the fact that nothing's getting done is, again, a direct result of the church not assuming its full responsibility. And we make excuses to justify our cowardice. We make doctrines to justify our powerlessness. We teach 
Oh, it's just God's will. It's just God's will. I love it. Like, everything's God's will. Oh, yeah, everything's God's will. I'm like, why do we put up guardrails? Well, if, the, if, it's God's, if everything's God's will, right, and that car comes across the lane and hits me and kills me, that must be God's will. It's foolishness. <laughs> He's empowered the church to be his body. We go forth in his name. And here's the kicker. This is the beauty of it all. You don't know what you're doing. That's perfectly fine. Jesus isn't asking you to know what you're doing. He never asked that. He asked you to be willing. He never sat back and goes, now I need you guys to sit back and get a little bit more training and get a little bit more equipped and then I want you to go. No, he said go. Go. The whole concept of the gospel is as you go. I will equip you. I will empower you. I will lead you. I will direct you as you go. Habakkuk puts it this way. The vision speaks. We do a thing here on vision. He says, write the vision, make it plain. God gives you a vision, a revelation. You start moving towards that vision, towards that revelation, and something happens with that vision and revelation. It starts talking to you. And as the vision talks to you, it changes. The vision changes. You didn't see the directions that you were supposed to take as you moved into that vision because the vision wasn't talking to you yet. The vision and the purpose of God only begins to speak to you when you step into it. It's a step of faith. And when you start moving towards what God said, all of a sudden there's, a, there's, there's more communication, there's more dialogue. But what we cannot do is we cannot blame God for something that he has already addressed. It's true. And I'll give you this one. I feel inclined to share this with you. This is going to hurt some of you. <laughs> but it's okay. You can go home and think about this one. Say this with me. Human need, Human need. does not move heaven. Not Crickets. Human need doesn't move heaven. Faith moves heaven. Faith is the currency of heaven. Human need is not. You see it in the life of Jesus. He walked by people in human need all day long. Human need all around him. Walked right by him. Didn't stop. Didn't address it. Didn't even talk about it. Faith is what moved him. When he saw faith, he, he moved. When somebody believed that he was the one and someone believed that he could answer it and they expressed faith in that and moved into what he had asked for, heaven moved. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Human need does not move heaven. He has addressed human need through the cross. Everything God is ever going to do about human need has been done through Jesus Christ. And now he releases his spirit, empowers his body, and goes forth. Oh, God, don't you see that I'm broke? Don't you see that I'm broke? Oh, I need, I need, I need, I need. And you stay broke for generations and generations and generations and generations. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. No, you have no faith. Well, I believe he's going to provide for me. Do you believe that God will provide for you to the degree that you will do it, what he, what he tells you? Jesus has a financial plan, Christian, and it's called the tithe and the offering. The tithe supports the church. So you give 10% of your income. This is for mature Christians, right? Or those who actually have faith. Most people don't. Oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? We should etch that above the doors of the entrance of the church. It should be etched above every, the doors at the entrance of every church. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Don't shake your fist at God if you're broke and you have not operated according to his financial plan. You have no way you look in the mirror. You're your own worst enemy. The problem's on your side, not his. Let's just be clear. The tithe supports the church. The offering goes to such things as India. 
That's an offering. That's not your tithe. Well, I tithe to India. You don't know your Bible, Christian, and you need to get in line. The tithe goes to the house, period. Just saying. It's the same thing. Well, I'm believing God to heal me. I'm believing God to heal me. Do you come for healing prayer? Do you ask for healing prayer? Well, no. Do you stand to your feet when something is called? Do you, come, do you actually go and travel around? I tell you guys a story. My wife was healed of several things. One of the things she was healed of, she had a cyst on her ovary. Doctors wanted to take the ovary out. I'm freaking out. Tumor, my bad. Tumor on her ovary. Doctor's like, well, we're going to take it out. We got a robot, Sherry. It's not a big deal. I mean, I'm like feeling like all the blood's draining out of my body. Where's my faith in that hour? I didn't have any. It was gone, right? I'm like, what? What? And Sherry's like, okay, all right. Tells, gives us this whole thing. We walk out of there, and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, what? Sherry goes, I'm excited. I'm like, you're excited? She's like, I'm excited. She's like, the devil's not taking my ovary. I said, the devil's not going to take my ovary. No way. She said, I'll fly around the country if I... She said, I'll go, I'll, I'll, wherever I got to go, I'll find where the anointing is, and I will go, and I will believe God, and I will pray, and I will seek prayer, and I will, I will press into what is mine by right of inheritance. Christians are lazy by nature. We're lazy. The church facilitates our laziness. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, this is the first church I came to that I actually felt like I'm supposed to do something. I'm like, where have you been going? Most churches teach you, just sit back, and we'll do it all for you. Are you comfortable? Does the chair vibrate at the right speed? How about your seat? Is it warm enough for you? Was the music too loud? Was the service too long? It's all comfort. Did you like the aquarium in the children's room? All those things are great, but that's not substance. The Christian is called to participate in the gospel, in the kingdom. And we teach you, just sit back and we'll do it all for you. Who told you that? It's why you're weak and anemic. Exercise your faith. Get involved in church. Begin to exercise the things that God has called you to. Exercise yourself unto godliness, the Bible says. You're weak and anemic because you don't spiritually exercise at all. You want somebody to bring you a smoothie. Anybody seen Wally? You ever seen the movie Wally? Come, come on. You, there we go. Oh, we, got, we got a mom in the room. In the movie Wally, it's about a little robot. All the people are stuck on a cruise ship, a luxury liner. And they've been stuck on this luxury liner for a long time. And nobody does anything. They lay on lounge chairs and float around the deck all day long drinking smoothies. And everybody's overweight. Can't get, and they get out of the chair and they fall down. They can't even stand up. Because they've been catered to their whole life. And they have no strength within themselves by which to stand. Just a thought. We're called into something, ladies and gentlemen. We're called to participate in this gospel. We're called to press into faith. If God, Jesus is a daring God. Did you know that? He dares you. He dares you. He puts promises there, and he says, I dare you to believe me for it. Do you believe you can take the mountain? I dare you to believe me for it. And then we go, I believe you for the mountain, Lord. And then we don't do anything. Well, Jesus must not want me to have the mountain. It's foolishness. If God wanted to heal me, he'd just show up at my door. I'd have a divine visitation. The angels would be around me. The light would shine. Singing would happen. And healing would come. Wrong answer. You want healing? You have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to come forth. If anyone is sick, let them call for the elders. That's just one aspect of it. You've got to come forth. 
It's true. I have an issue. I need prayer. I have an issue. I need prayer. Most of the stuff that you want requires something from you. It's true. We, again, have a misnomer within the church. Don't ask me why I'm on this kick. I'm on some kick. I'm trying to get back to the notes, but I'm on this lane here. We have another misnomer within our, within our churches, and we teach that salvation requires nothing. Who told you that? It requires everything. It is a total and complete surrender of your life. Jesus said, if you do not take, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, what? You know, we say, okay, well, we're saved. Jesus has done it all. No, you have to give your life away. This is why we have a lot of skeptics in Christian. Well, I tried Jesus. Tried Jesus? I didn't know you tried him. I didn't know he was the latest Frappuccino flavor at Starbucks. I didn't know that was the case. I read, I surrender to his lordship. The gospel only works. To, the, the gospel works to the degree that you're willing to surrender and submit to it. That's it. The gospel stops where your self-will is invoked. When you invoke your self-will, the power of God stops. He never overrides your self-will, ever. If you say, I want my sexuality, Jesus, you're not getting involved here, he'll leave it to you. Have it. But you get all the consequences that come with it. If you say, I want my relationships, Jesus, don't you tell me how to do this, he'll leave you to it. But you get all the consequences that come with it. If you say, I want finances all the way that I want to do it, and you stay out of my business, and don't you tell me to do this, and don't you tell me to do that, he'll leave you right there. And he'll write Ichabod, no glory. Wherever you deny him access, he will write Ichabod. No glory, no glory, no glory, no glory. If there's an area of your life that is not functioning as the kingdom has declared, you need to look no further than there's something, there's, there's an issue, and it's not God's. There's some dysfunction on your side. It may be a behavioral issue, it may be a habit, it may be an attitude, it may be a generational curse. Oh, dare we say that. The enemy claims a right over you by rights of inheritance through your ancestors. I was just talking to the guy, and he says, well, we don't want to use the word gen generational curse. We want, to, we want to use the word learned and formed habits. I'm like, really? Well, I'm a little bit more, I don't know, whatever you want to call me, less sophisticated on that front. I'm going to use the word generational curse, an inherited right. If there's poverty in your line for six years or six generations, there's a curse there, more than likely. That's not, that's not just something out of the blue. If everybody in your family suffers from a specific issue, there's a curse there. Just saying. I mean, I share my own story. Every male on my dad's side, every single one of them, including my brother, has diabetes, every one of them, except me, because I understand the concept of generational curse. And I've severed it, and I've broken it, and I've renounced it, and I've closed the doors, and I, my bloodline flows from heaven and not of the earth. It's true. But you have to appropriate it. So it's one thing to know it, right? It's one thing to have a badge. It's another thing to use the badge. You have to appropriate this. You have to break generational curses. There's a process. It's simple. It's not complicated. But you have to hit, the, hit all the right things and get rid of it. You know, my brother's diabetes. My mom's like, oh, when you get diabetes, I'm like, it ain't coming to me, mom. You got the wrong person. It ends right here. It has ended at the bloodline of Christ, and I have stepped over, and I am a new creation, and I claim no inheritance from my ancestors, none, none. I am born of the blood of Jesus, and I am of the line of a king. I am a son of a lion. That's who I am. Make no mistake. Do you live like it? Not always. <laughs> but that doesn't change the fact that I am. 
And that doesn't change the fact that that's how I will view myself. I see myself in light of that and that alone. So John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. So we have to understand, this is again, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this. We're going to form it as we go, because there's a lot of ways I can go off this one. John, is the, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus is the first of the new. We have a transition that happens through the Old Testament into the new. Say this with me. Jesus has never denied or stopped the prophetic ministry. The prophetic ministry is alive today, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus wrote a book, but he didn't lose his voice. It's important you understand that. He's still speaking. My sheep hear my voice. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says. He's alive and well. He's speaking forth unto his sons and daughters. He's speaking forth unto his churches, and he's speaking forth unto a generation. The prophetic ministry has never been stopped, ever. It's been changed. It's been shifted. Jesus is the first of the new. He is a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18 says, you're going to know, tells the people, you're going to know when the Messiah is coming because he's going to be a prophet from among you like Moses. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, doesn't he? And all the people freak out and they go, what did they call him? They go, this is the prophet. Well, what prophet were they referring to? They were referring to the prophet that was declared to them in Deuteronomy chapter 18. They knew their word, and they see all of a sudden, Moses had bread come down from heaven and fed the masses. Here's this one standing here, breaking bread, and food is multiplied. This is the one that was promised. They understood him. He was promised to be a prophet like Moses. John said this, so John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Problem a lot of times in prophetic ministry within the church is we do not understand prophetic ministry at all. We are absolutely clueless. We're guessing. We're guessing. We're either in full-on denial that it doesn't exist anymore, right? Like a pastor told me, well, we don't want to hear voices, Kevin. We don't want to hear voices. That's my favorite line. I'm like, seriously, man? You want to hear voices? I'm like, whose voice are you listening for? You know, I mean, I don't, I don't get it. We don't understand it. We either deny it or we don't understand it. There's been a transition, and I'm going to show it to you. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. What is he referring to? The type of ministry. Jesus referred to John as the prophet. Those born among men, women, there is none greater than John. And John's saying, my time, the time of the era of the Old Testament is closing, and there's an embreaking and a birthing of a new. This is a spiritual movement. So we see John saying, I must decrease, he must increase. It's not just in realms of his ministry. It's in realms of the Old Testament closing and the New Testament opening. Luke says this, like, I don't know, my, my computer spell checks for some reason. How does Luke become like? So I don't know if you can read that on the screen. Like, where's the book of like? I don't know. Where's the book of like? <laughs> Luke chapter 9 says, when his disciples James and John, you guys will know this story. This is, again, this is the closing of the Old Testament prophecy and the oh, prophets in the beginning of the new. James and John looked at them. These people were rejecting Jesus, right? Imagine this, how loving the disciples were. A bunch of people rejecting Jesus, and James and John go, Lord, you want us to call fire down on these people like Elijah did? You want us to just torch the whole place? <laughs> what's crazy is they had the faith that they could do it. That's what's crazy. They actually had the faith that they could actually do that. And so they're like, just say the word, Lord. I mean, <laughs> it's on. We're going to burn it down. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. And again, this is a consistent teaching here. 
is that we, we teach within the church that the James and John were emulating the, the, the devil. They were being destructive like the devil. They're not quoting Lucifer. They're quoting Elijah. They were of the Old Testament spirit of prophetic. That time has come. You do not, you're speaking from a spirit that no longer, a prophetic voice that no longer is active. The prophetic voice of the Old Testament is no longer active. I'm going to show it to you again. So in the Old Testament, so they quote Elijah. In the Old Testament, what did Elijah do? He judged the nations, right? Do you know anything about Elijah? He's running around. The Old Testament prophets are judging nations. The Old Testament prophet, Elijah in particular, called for a famine. The Old Testament prophet executed the false prophets. Anybody know the story? Right? All the false prophets. Okay, he went. Elijah wins, and he's like, kill them all, and then off he goes, right? So we have all this crazy stuff going on with the Old Testament prophets. Here's the question. You put the next slide up there. What would happen if we brought Elijah through the cross and set him in the New Testament? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the Bible tells us exactly what Elijah would look like on the other side of the cross. It tells us this. Before Jesus comes, so here it is, other side of the cross, I'm going to send Elijah before your face, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And what's he going to be doing in the, in, in the New Testament ministry of the prophet? What does he do? Is he judging? Is he condemning? Is he pointing fingers? He's reconciling. What does it say? And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. The New Testament prophetic is reconciliation. It's not judgment. It's not running around pointing fingers. This is where the prophetic ministry within the church is, is, is completely misunderstood. We think a prophet's going to run around and read your mail and tell you all the things that are wrong with you. You know, well, I just think there's drinking, you know, and you just start saying all this stuff. It's nonsense. I tell people, we teach this in our prophetic classes, we teach this in prophetic ministry, and we also teach it in fire starters. You do not have to be a genius to find dirt in a gold mine. If you're looking for dirt, in somebody's life, Christian, you're not a genius if you found dirt. You're not a genius if you can call out somebody's problems. The genius lies in extracting the gold. The genius lies in finding the gold. That's where the genius lies. And that is the sum total of the New Testament prophetic ministry. It's not judgment, it's reconciliation. It's affirmation. God sees you, he knows you, he cares. This is how he sees you. Be reconciled to him. This is how he sees you. This is what he wants for your life. This is what he's calling you towards. Be reconciled with him. Believer and non-believer. Christian, come into your identity. Come into your fullness. Believer, come into relationship. Unbeliever, come into relationship. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us what, what, um, what uh, Prophecy is, in the New Testament, it's edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. So if you are thinking you're running around giving words of prophetic, and you are not speaking edification, exhortation, and comfort, you are not fulfilling the decree of the New Testament prophet. Some of you have experienced what we would call in churches New Testament prophets. Running around yelling and screaming, pointing fingers, speaking condemnation. It's nonsense. We call forth life. We are the people who call life from the dead. God is the God of the resurrection. He gives life to the dead and calls what is not as though it were. We don't speak condemnation into our land. We speak revival. Oh, God's going to judge America. I've had a prophetic word. God's going to judge America. Great. See previous conversation. You can go over there. It's for me. I have the power to speak forth, and I call forth revival. I call forth awakening. I call forth a move of God from north to south to east to west, from sea to shining sea. That's New Testament prophetic, people. 
Well, if you don't repent of your sin, you're going to be judged. And everything that you have is going to be gone. Why would you stay where you are when God has so much for for you? Why would you stay in an appetite of death when God has given an opportunity for life? It's an invocation to reconciliation. It's bringing forth the kingdom. The Old Testament prophets couldn't do that because they had no open heaven. They had no authority. They had to speak only in context to the times in which they lived and sin ruled and reigned. So they couldn't speak forth righteousness because the power of God did not move. It was a, it was a context of sin. sin. You sinned and there was judgment. You sinned and there was consequences. And so that's all they're speaking forth because the power of the devil hadn't been broken. The, this is again, I'm going to go off on this. Don't ask me why, but this is where I feel like he's taking me. We judge the Old Testament harshly. We look at the Old Testament and we judge God in light of the Old Testament. Well, look what he did there, and look what he did there, and look what he did there. You don't understand the context of the Old Testament. You don't understand. The devil was in full authority. Full authority. Do you know a world where the devil's in full authority? Do you know a world such as that in the Old Testament where it said these people were satanic? The Bible doesn't even tell us what they were doing. It doesn't even tell us. It gives us little clues because God's not interested. He doesn't take glory and evil, but they were doing wickedness, and the wickedness was so high, and there was blood sacrifices and human sacrifices and all kinds of crazy stuff that would make you just, that would appall you. Even today, you would be appalled. And it said that they were infected all the way down to their children. So it talks about the Amalekites. They were infected all the way down to their children. There was no redemptive generation among them at all. At all. Even their children. That's why you see the difference. You see Nineveh and you see the Amalekites. Nineveh was spared because Jesus said there's 10,000 children, thousands of children in that city who have not worshipped their gods, who have not given themselves over. There's a redemptive generation within that city that I can use. With the Amalekites, there was no redemptive generation. They had all given themselves. They were training their kids in this stuff. It was darkness and it was spirit-empowered. You don't think it's true? Look at Jesus. He reads your gospel. You can't swing a cat without encountering a demon. There are demons everywhere. Lucifer comes full on, stands right in front of him. If you are the son of God, I'm the God of this world. He comes full on. It's true. Sin's power has been broken. We have no right to judge God in light of the Old Testament. We're on the other side of the cross. We have 2,000 years of the devil's head being crushed. 2,000 years of the inbreaking and the ruling reign of God coming into the earth. We have no right to judge God in light of a world that you have no idea what it was like. None. No idea. No idea. Just a thought. But, we, but here's the problem. In the church, we deny the spirit. So we can't, even, we can't even go there because if we go there, we'd actually have to, to say that there was demonic and spiritual power that was affecting how God dealt with those generations. And the power of sin wasn't broken. And let me give you a little clue about the devil. If the devil has a right, I'm going to tell you right now, he claims it. He claims it. That's why the Bible says, give him nothing. If you give him whatever you give him, he's not thinking about it. He's taking it. It's true. He does, you, you say, oh, you can have a foot. He's not going to stand back a foot away. He's going to push right up against it. He's right there, right up against the glass. He takes everything. You don't give him anything. And if the enemy had a right over mankind in that era, you rest assured he had. He took it. Rest assured. And it was bondage, 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 bondage. The whole earth was under bondage. 
I love it. People go, well, why don't understand the New Testament? Because everywhere Jesus went, demons were manifesting because the whole world was infected. The power had not been broken. They had free reign. They came and went where they want. They did whatever they wanted to do. Eh. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual, but especially that you may prophesy. Prophetic ministry is, is relevant to the church today. Prophetic ministry is, is not only relevant, it's necessary. Necessary. This is, again, a kind of emphatic comparative. So if we're going to go into the Greek structure, we're going to talk about commands. This is Paul commanding a church. And you know what he's commanding them to do? To pursue love, the charis of God, the love of God. Pursue the fullness of his love, his love for you, his love through you. That's what he's telling them. And to desire the spiritual. So when the church denies the spiritual, and we think it's all liturgy, and we think it's all just shiny happy, and there's no spiritual encounter, we're missing the point. The church is supernatural or it is nothing at all. Christianity is supernatural or it is nothing at all. That's what distinguishes the believer. It's not just being saved and forgiven, but the power that can be exuded through the life of the believer. That's what distinguishes us. Without it, we're nothing. Pursue the spiritual, but especially may prophesy. Jesus fulfilled the, 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 not only the ministry of the prophet, he's given it to us, he's fulfilled the ministry of the priest. Am I being too heavy for you guys this morning? No? Okay. <laughs> I know it's like a load, like boom, dropping the bomb here. So Jesus is priest. So what is a priest? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament priest was an intercessor, and he was a mediator. So he would stand in the gap for you, and he would reason upon your behalf. That's what the priest would do. He would offer the sacrifice for you. You couldn't offer the sacrifice. You needed someone to offer a sacrifice for you. But what's interesting is the priests themselves had to offer a sacrifice for themselves before they could offer it for you because they, too, were sinful. Jesus didn't have that problem. Job, here's the book of Job. Job's crying out for a mediator. He realizes that he's separated from God. And he realizes that he does not have the ability to approach God and that God's distanced from him because the Bible tells us why. It tells us that God, Jesus, the Bible tells us that God has not distanced himself from you. It's your sin that has distanced you from him. And then it says, come, let us reason together. In other words, come to me and we'll work this out. Come to me and we'll deal with the issues that keep putting gaps between you and me. Next slide. He's praying and he's saying, can someone bring us together? So Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being our high priest. Jesus wasn't just the high priest. Jesus was the offering. So he was not only the priest who ministered the offering, he was the offering itself. Try that one on. So it tells us this, that Jesus is the high priest of good things. Aren't you glad? He's a priest who ministers good things. Jesus is in a good mood. He's glad you're here. He's got something good for you. He's for you, not against you. Here's the big kicker. Jesus is for you even when you're against you. And you're against you more times than you can count. You ever do this? Why did I do that? That was so stupid. <laughs> you make choices that you know are the wrong ones, but you do them anyway. Jesus is for you even when you're against you. He's the, he's the high priest of good things with greater and more perfect tabernacle. In other words, he ministers not from a tabernacle made with hands. He ministers. We are now the dwelling place. The word tabernacle is dwelling. We are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Hands did not make you. God made you. 
that is not of this creation, not the blood of goats and calves. Blood was required to cover sin. Sin is death. Blood is life. Life must cover death. That's why they had blood sacrifices. The, the blood was to cover the death or the stain of sin. And they had to offer bulls and goats and pigeons and all kinds of things in order to cover their sin. And what it's telling us is that God's blood, Jesus' blood, the blood of the divine God in human form, is greater than all of that. And he gives us not a temporary. So the Hebrew people, when they would offer sacrifices, the redemption was only temporary. Jesus' blood is permanent. Aren't you glad? This is why when you're born again and people say you can leave, lose your salvation, I'm like, is the blood of Christ permanent or is it temporary? Are we under an Old Testament economy or are we under a New Testament economy? It's true. I know it's hard. The church uses these manipulative games. to They think that by manipulating people and putting fear in people that they're going to lose their salvation, that it's going to produce righteousness. Fear doesn't produce righteousness, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't. I come from that. Well, you be careful. If Jesus came when you're, you know, I didn't smoke a cigarette, but if Jesus came when you were coming out of that R-rated movie, you'd lose your salvation. Jesus came when you're hanging out with those friends, you know, you might, you'd lose your salvation. There was always this invocation of fear. There is no fear in love. Can I get a witness? Let's, let's play this out. Perfect love does what? That's right. So anytime fear is your dominant motivation, you're not in perfect love. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I didn't say it was going to benefit you. <laughs> Enemy can't steal your salvation, but he can make your life a living hell in this life. He will rob you at every opportunity. He will take everything that you give him. Your salvation, the blood of Christ is eternal. Either that's true or it's not. And if that verse is not true and there's many more like it, then we need to throw the whole Bible out because if, if there's any thread within that scripture that is not true, it'll pull the whole book apart. But the word of God is true. The blood of Christ is eternal. And some of you you, 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 you find yourself in brokenness. You find yourself in fallenness. You find yourself cycling into habits and all of these destructive things. And the enemy wants to lie to you and tell you God doesn't love you and you've lost your salvation. Who told you that? I'm serious. Who told you that? Jesus isn't telling you that. He's not. I, again, I use the, the image of a child. When your child, Jesse, when your kid's born, does that ever not become your daughter or your son? Is that at any time? Right? So that child is born. Those are, those are your, that's your daughter. That's your son. No matter what they do, they'll always be your child, right? Because they're born of you. When you are born of him, you are always his child. You can live towards your inheritance or you can live away from it. This makes religious people crawl. I'm telling you. That's why grace is so amazing. It's by grace you are saved and that not of yourself. If I didn't do anything to win it, that what makes me think I can do something to lose it? I didn't do anything to get it, except here, here's my broken, jacked up, messed up life. If you can do anything with it, have it. That's all I did. That's all you did. You didn't do anything to gain it. How can you do something to lose it? He's a priestly. What does priestly mean? So Jesus is our high priest. He's the mediator of a better covenant by means of death and redemption of transgressions. It's better than the old, and that we may receive what? The whole point, here again, the whole point is to receive eternal inheritance. Jesus did it all so that you could receive an eternal inheritance. And we all want to talk about it being in the sweet by and by. No, it's also in the rotten here and now. You have an eternal inheritance right now. 
You have access to the power of God, the kingdom of God, the reality of God, all of the fullness of God right now. Alex just went back to India, and he was talking to me on, the, on, the, on Skype, the guy that was doing the India thing, and he said, when I came to this church, he said, I have never encountered God in a, real, in a more real way. He said, I feel like God is real to me now. He's real. Because I, what we do is we teach you about your inheritance. We teach you what's rightfully yours, and we challenge you and dare you to step into it. And then when you step into it, you're like, what? This was here all along? I'm like, yeah, that was there all along. All along. It's yours. The purpose isn't just to save you, but to bring you into inheritance. So what does priestly mean? It means unto God, from God, and unto others. That's what it means. If that's true, we'd see it with Jesus, which we do. He is the high priest. What did he do? He made himself an offering, and because he made himself an offering, this is Hebrews 1, he received an inheritance. You and I are his inheritance. Because of the offering, he received dominion over all of creation. Everything that is created, Jesus is now, in a, even though he wasn't, man gave it away, Jesus came, paid the price, now it's his. So he made an offering, and he received it. And when he received, when he received what was his, he makes it known to you. That is exactly what priestly ministry is. We, unto God, from God, and unto others. Everybody say it with me. Unto the Lord, from the Lord, and unto others. That's it. And that's how we are. Jesus fulfills the priesthood. He's our mediator, and he gives it to you and me. This is, again, the body of Christ. We're called to be ministers. The full, he fulfills it. How do we know he fulfilled the priesthood? Hebrews 1 tells us a very important statement. It says, when he had done all of these things and paid the atonement, it says he sat down. He sat down, which means the priestly office, or that office is fulfilled. It's done. In the Old Testament, the priests were not allowed to sit down. Why were they not allowed to sit down? Because the work was never done. They weren't allowed to sit down. All day, every day. They had, whenever they were out publicly ministering, they were not allowed to take a seat ever. Yeah, it'd be like me sitting down. Hey, you're not supposed to sit down. Get up, you know? Kind of like that. They couldn't sit down, but Jesus sat down, which again tells us that it was fulfilled. He purged himself. How do we know he fulfilled it? Next slide. And then he gives it unto us. First Peter tells us that we are a royal what? That's right. You're chosen. You're chosen people. It says you're a chosen generation. That language is not just chosen generation in the mythical future. That language is you are a chosen generation right now. It means you are chosen in your generation. You are on purpose, with a purpose, chosen by God to partner with his kingdom and with his spirit to fulfill his purposes in this generation. That's the point. You're chosen in your generation. You say, well, how did I get that? Because he gave it to you. He gave it to you. You didn't send in a resume. There's no qualification other than Christ. He just gives it to you. This is, again, this is one of the most beautiful things I've, I've learned about the Lord is that he calls you what you are long before you get there. <laughs> he says, you're a chosen generation. You go, I don't look like it. I don't feel like it. I don't act like it. It doesn't matter. You are that. The key to discipleship, the key to transformation is understanding the identity that God has given Lining your life up with that identity and pursuing it. Seeing yourself in light of the fact that you're chosen and you're, you're a chosen generation and you're chosen in your generation. Seeing yourself in light of the fact that you're a son and a daughter. I'm a son of the highest. This is who I am. This is what I am. And partnering and beginning to press in to get understanding as to what that means and beginning to live towards that. That's one of the greatest reasons why Christians cannot manifest their inheritance is because they don't live towards it. They don't live towards the identity that God has given them. 
And you're not going to get it in a one-shot deal. You're going to have to discipline yourself. You're going to have to tell yourself. And you're going to have to silence all voices to the contrary. All voices to the contrary. You have family members that want to remember you from five years ago. You have, fa- you have people around you that want to remember you from the time before you knew Christ or at a time before you, you reached an, another level of transformation. That person's gone. That person's not around anymore. You have to see yourself in light of who Jesus says and not in light of who everybody else says you are. It's very important. Live towards it. And it says we've been called out of darkness and into the light in order to show forth his praises of him who called us out of darkness. So we, we were translated. We're given an inheritance. We're royal priests. We're, so we're, Jesus has given us the priestly ministry. We're not just the priestly ministry. We have, royal de- we have a royalty over us. We have a kingdom authority over us. You are spiritually empowered by the king of kings to minister in his name. You understand that? That's why we ask you, one of the reasons you can see, you go around and say, I want you to go and lay hands. Well, aren't you supposed to lay hands on a pastor? No, you're the royal priest, just as much as I'm the royal priest. You have a royal authority from heaven to minister in his name. You go, I don't know what I'm doing. That's okay. I love it. This is, again, this is one of the, my favorite concepts. The Lord told me this a while ago when I was praying. I'm like, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh-huh. And I heard the Lord say to me, Kevin, I have no confidence in you. That's one that you really want to write down, right? <laughs> Say, wait a minute, Lord, can I write that one down? You have no confidence in me. And guess what? He has no confidence in you either. But he has total confidence in his spirit. You understand that? He has no confidence. So when he calls you to do something that's beyond yourself, we put the burden on ourselves as if we've got to meet that expectation. You don't have to meet the expectation. You have to partner with the Holy Spirit. Because you can't, if you could do it, I mean, he has no confidence in you. But he has confidence in his spirit. And that's, that's very liberating. So when I realize all I'm to do is to partner with the Spirit and do what He says and to step into what He tells me and to keep moving forward, it, it relieves the burden. It makes life a lot easier and a lot less complicated. There are those of you here, God's given you a vision and you think it's yours to manufacture the outcome of that vision. It's not. You have to do something. You have to partner with God. You have to get the vision and you have to partner with God. But you, you, you Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when do we get to say we can do all things? Through Jesus, right? Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. Do you think he's got confidence in you? He knows you can't do anything. He knows you can't, but you can do everything in partnership with him. Uh, do you guys want to hear about Grace and Rich? Do you want to hear about this? Yeah. Two of you? That's all I need. I only need two, I tell you before. So this, bother, this always used to bother me. These are one of these verses that used, I would read, and it used to bother me. This word praise used to bother me. You had a problem with praise, Kevin? No, I had a problem with praise being used in this context, that we may declare his praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his life. That word praises doesn't seem to fit in the flow of that verse. So I've done a very deep Greek word study <coughs> on, the word, on this word, and the word that's used there is the word artes, it's not even the word that we use for praise. It's an entirely different word, and it means grace-enriched. In order that you may declare a grace-enriched life, in order that you may, the Greeks used it in the word, as the word superiority, in order that you may demonstrate a spiritually superior life. That's why he called you out of darkness and into light, that you would demonstrate a life that is empowered by the Spirit. That's what the word grace means. Grace means spirit-empowered. It's the word charis. It's the root of all spiritual ministry. Charismata is the movement of the spirit. It's rooted in the word charis. It's used again here. Charis. 
artist, that you would come forth and you would show forth the praises. What is he asking for? A superiority. You're the head and not the tail, Christian. I hate to tell you that. Nobody believes that? You're the head and not the tail above only. We are to demonstrate the superiority of our lives to the world around us. Not to rule, but to benefit. We're the benefactors. We're the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're the benefactors of the world, and we demonstrate this by the Spirit, artes. The Greeks understood it. It's used all throughout ancient Greek writings. And what's interesting, if you study that word artes, they knew that there was a spiritual life. Homer knew. Plato knew. Aristotle knew. All of them knew that there was a, there was a, a superior life. They knew that there was some empowerment that was available in life. They knew it, but they didn't know where to find it. Interesting. All of them wrote about it, but none of them knew where to find it. And the most common place that they thought they could find it was through knowledge. But they were never able to achieve it through knowledge. This is where the church is at. The church actually believes, like the Galatian church, that having begun in the Spirit, we can now fulfill it in the flesh. Having been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go forth, now we're able to do it in the flesh. And all we need is knowledge. All we need is knowledge. I'm all for knowledge. But the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Knowledge without spirit means nothing, people. Knowledge without revelation means nothing. Nothing. The Pharisees were filled with knowledge, but they couldn't recognize Jesus standing right in front of them. Filled with knowledge, but spiritually dull and unable to discern. Blind as bats. True. Jesus is king, so he fulfills the ministry of the priest, and he gives it to you in order that you would go and demonstrate a spirit-empowered life, in order that you would go and demonstrate a superior life. Then when people look at you and go, how is it that you guys have problems, but you always land on your feet? I mean, if I had that problem, I would fall apart. Well, you have a spiritually empowered, superior life. How is it that you have all the right answers for your business, and you're smart, and you seem to make all the right moves? Because I have a spiritually empowered life. I have a grace-enriched life. Doesn't mean you don't go through things. Doesn't mean you don't struggle, but you win. You keep going forward. You go over. The Christian is eternally victorious. Eternally victorious. In this life and in the one to come. I didn't say you didn't go through valleys. I didn't say you didn't have to trod through some darkness. But you keep going forward and you will win. Victory is inevitable to the Christian. It is awesome. Who said that? That is awesome. Come on. That is awesome. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is king. He has rulership. He is heir to the throne. He is the heir of all creation. He is, he is king over sickness, over the seas, over disease, over death, and over abundance. This is what you see him demonstrating his lordship. Calms the, he calms the storms. Is all this. He is the king. He comes with kingdom authority and kingdom power. Even over abundance, Christian. They didn't have enough food? Not a problem. They didn't have any money to pay the taxes? Not a problem. Jesus was pretty handy to have around, man. Anytime he needed something. Lord, I'm really wanting those fish and chips again. <laughs> Got any loaves and fishes? Let's, let's go in on that. He shows us how his kingdom works. This is important. So we have a king who wants to show us his kingdom. Why? Why does this king want to show you and me his kingdom? You know why? Because you're heirs to his kingdom. You understand this? This is very important. We treat Jesus like he's so abstract. He's so out there. He shows us his kingdom because we are heirs to the kingdom. He shows us the kingdom and gives us understanding into the kingdom because we operate in context to the kingdom. True. I'm telling you, man, I look at Christianity as, as like, this is, what, this is my world. And so I'm always looking at what heaven wants, and then I'm looking at what we're doing. 
And then I'm looking at what heaven wants, and then I look at what we're doing. And when I say what we're doing as churches, I go, well, what? wait a minute, this is what heaven says? Well, is anybody doing this? Is anybody actually doing this? And then I look around, and the answer is no. For the most part, there's pockets of it, but for the most part, people aren't. And we treat Jesus in this abstract, well, Jesus is king, and no, no, he's out there. And we don't realize what he's given to us. We don't realize what he has empowered us to do and what he's empowered us to be. And we're completely dull, completely dull. He shows us how the kingdom works through natural parallels. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. He shows us the kingdom is similar to this natural parallel. The kingdom of heaven is like reaping and sowing. The kingdom of heaven is like an, an owner of a vine dresser. The kingdom of heaven looks like this. He does it again and again and again. He tries to get us to understand the kingdom through a natural parallel. And he says this, right? If we, this, is, this is the concept. If you cannot make the connection to his kingdom through earthly things, then you have no foundation when he speaks of things that are not of this earth. Jesus' kingdom has things within it that have no earthly parallel. But you will never understand the things of his kingdom that have no earthly parallel. And if you cannot understand his kingdom when he explains it to you in context of an earthly parallel. He says this is what he's saying to Nicodemus. If you don't get what I'm telling you, if I'm relating it to you on a natural thing, how in the world do you think you're going to understand me if I talk to you of things in which you have no parallel to? It's true. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't get it. You don't get it. So how in the world will you then believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? Which means he will speak to you of heavenly things. But he will not speak to you of heavenly things if you don't understand the basics. If you cannot run with a footman, you will not race with the horses. i got news for you. It's like Christians, we want to race for the horses. We'll run with the footmen. Oh, I don't want to do that. I want to, oh, no. That's why we teach Radical Five here. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give and live on mission. The five most basic principles for all Christians. If you cannot do those basic five, you will not be given any more. Let me write, let me say that again. Somebody needs to Twitter that. If you cannot do those five basic things, you will not be given any more. You will stay in preschool until you learn your primary colors. You will stay in elementary school until you learn remedial math. This is where the church is. We think we have it on our terms. There's a foundation of discipleship that needs to be employed. Read your Bible. Duh. I don't understand it. He never told you to understand it. He told you to read it. Pray. I don't know how to pray. Learn. Get around people who pray. Say, I just want to hang out and listen to you guys pray. Pray. Commit and connect to church. Find a church home and commit to it. Commit and connect to it. Get involved in it. Be a part of it. Financially give and live on mission, which means tell other people about Jesus. Go and give another person a Jesus encounter. If you're not doing those five things, you're not going any higher spiritually. I'm sorry. You say, I don't like that. Oh, well, I didn't write the rules. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign. This is an important point right here. So you put the next slide up. So Jesus has been running around healing. He's healing people, right? He's demonstrating what? Kingdom authority. That's what kingdom authority looks like, the manifestation of miracles. Kingdom authority shouldn't be abstract to the believer. It shouldn't be a little here, a little there. Kingdom authority and the manifestation of the kingdom in spirit and truth and all of these things should be a common occurrence. It shouldn't be like, wow, we had someone healed, what? Was that 18 months ago? You know, somebody was healed 18 months ago. 
And before that, what was it, four years? Four years? Yeah. Well, I remember 1962, we actually had three people here that year. Some churches haven't seen a person healed in decades. Oh, they'll talk about it, but they haven't seen anybody healed. And I'm not talking about, oh, I had a pain in my elbow, my elbow's gone. I want to see organs and situations and, and diseases healed. That's what I've been asking God for. So it's really interesting, like this morning, he starts telling me to pray internally because that's what I'm asking for. You want to see it? Okay, Kevin, call it out. It's not going to happen unless you step in. Kingdom authority. So they're at, Jesus is running around demonstrating miracles. And you know what they say to him? He's demonstrating miracles. And they go, show us a sign that we may believe that you are who you say you are. So they tell him. It's the word simeno. And the word simeno has an active form, and it has a neutered form. Jesus was performing simeno in the active tense. They asked him for a simeno in the neutered tense. So they're asking him for a sign. They're saying, show us something that we can understand so that we can believe. And the word simeno means encounter. So when it's in the active sense, it's an experience. So Jesus is running around healing people, bringing them into an experience. Have you ever seen anybody healed before? You ever seen a miracle happen? You ever had a prophetic word that you knew the person and that somebody got that word and you were just like, whoa. Even though the word wasn't for you, you were brought into the experience. You see, this is what Jesus is doing. He's healing people and bringing people into the experience. That's how he's demonstrating who he is. But the Pharisees, because they're spiritually dead, stand on the outskirts questioning everything that he does supernaturally. Everything he does is questioned supernaturally. I'm telling you, the American church is right there at that precipice. They you want to read some stuff, man? Man, the, pe the people that attack the supernatural ministries are vicious. Arrogant answer givers who have no glory. Ichabod. They're like the Sadducees. <laughs> they come to Jesus, they don't believe in a resurrection. We don't believe in a resurrection, but they ask him a question about the resurrection. Why are you asking him a question about something you don't believe in? You don't believe in an afterlife, but you're going to ask him about the afterlife? You know, and Jesus looks at him, I love this answer. He says, you do not know the word of God, and you do not know the power of God. That's what he tells them their problem is. He said, your problem is, is you don't know the word. And your problem is, is you don't know his power. You have no experience in the power, yet you feel justified to comment on it. But you have experience in it. You have no experience in it. That's what Christians are. we got these arrogant theologians and all these guys who want to try to say all this stuff. They have no experience in power, but they want to be the ones who comment on it. Really? You're a Sadducee. And then he tells them you don't even know your word. Did the Sadducees not know their word? They spent every waking hour of the day reading the word. They were filled with all the knowledge, but they had absolutely clueless, lacked in a carnal line of thinking, and completely oblivious to spiritual things. I'm telling you, the theologians in the American church are that, completely, spending days upon days and breaking down the Greek and getting the verb. I mean, I do it, but I don't do it from the context of, of like, I don't believe in the supernatural. They do. Sadducees. And he looks at them, and he says to them, if you want me, I'm demonstrating Semeno. I'm bringing people into an experience that demonstrates who I am. They're watching me, and people are going, oh my gosh, this is God. He just multiplied bread. He's the prophet. 
Now, how did they get that? They got that from the experience that they found themselves in. And the Pharisees are watching all of this, and they go, show us forth something. Give us something logical. Give us something that we can quantify. Give us something that we can calculate by. Jesus said, you want something to calculate by? No sign will be given to you except the prophet Jonah. Nothing supernatural. My resurrection will be the only sign you get. That's it. This is where the church is. It's exactly where the church is. The only sign we can claim is the sign of the resurrection. The only sign we can claim is somebody getting saved through the resurrection. Right? We claim nothing else. Could it be we're just like these people? Could it be? We want something we can quantify. Show forth something. Give us semeno. Give us semeno. And Jesus said, I'm giving you semeno. I'm giving you a sign in an experiential encounter, but you can't get it because you're too dull. And you're too critical. And you're too judgmental. And your perceptions. And you think like men and women. And you think on an earthly plane. And you have no context for the kingdom. You have no understanding of the kingdom at all. I love it. I can't stand it. It drives me nuts. These guys want to comment on this stuff. My wife's like, why do you read it? I go, just so I can get fired up. That's probably why I read it. <laughs> I need somebody to motivate me. All right, we're going to close right here. So how do we interact with that? Here's how we interact with Jesus has fulfilled these ministries he's given them to you. What does it mean? You have to understand. Say this with me. In the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, the Lord has ordained me a prophet, a priest, and a king. I speak forth with his authority. I minister in his name. And I have dominion. You have to see yourself in context of what he's given you. You have to learn the prophetic. Practice the, practice the prophetic. We do classes here. We'll teach you. We practice priestly communion. Honor the Lord. Worship him. Begin to offer your life. This is priestly communion. Worshiping God when nobody's looking. Worshiping God in your car. Emptying yourself. Loving Him. Blessing Him. And then giving yourself, this is the big piece, because we love to do that, but we don't do this. We don't let Him love us back. Let His, let his love come back on you. Let His power come back on you. Let him, let him minister back to you. And then go forth from that place and minister to others. Long story here. I won't skip it. I wasn't sure if I could get to this, but I, you know, I threw it in there. Exercise dominion. This is kingdom. Learn and understand your authority. Take your rightful place. One of the ways you exercise authority is you weaponize prayer. Prayer is a weapon. Ephesians 5, armor of God, and it ends with the, what, the, the power of prayer. Prayer is a weapon. Come on. Prayer is a weapon. Understand your authority. Take your rightful place. Weaponize prayer. Bind loose. Bring areas of your life under his dominion. Create dominion in the world practically and supernaturally. I know this is a concept that I don't have time to explain. The difference between priestly ministry, this is, I'll close with this point. Priestly ministry is ministering to a need, right? So priestly ministry is helping this orphanage get, sustain itself for the short term. Kingdom ministry or dominion ministry is when you create lasting change. So a priestly ministry might meet an immediate need, but a kingdom or dominion ministry creates lasting change. Big difference. And we oftentimes get stuck in the context of only ministering priestly. Jesus wants us to be a kingdom people where what we, when we minister, we create lasting change. That's the difference. Dominion is a change in the authoritative structure. Everything that was is no more. All right. So there's your theological fire hose this morning. Just wanted to give you that. <laughs> I'll just, yeah, I'll just share with you like how God has been leading me lately. I know where we're going in the future, but particularly on this subject, I feel the Lord 
just compelling me to teach more, a little bit more basis or theology. And so that's what you're getting, right? And um, anyway, bring it on. Bring it on. So I'm bringing it on. There you go. Let me, let me bless you. We're slightly over time, but we still got 10 minutes, so I'm going to bless you. I want to leave a little bit of time in between. If you need prayer, we have a prayer team over here. Uh, second service is going to start in about eight minutes, but let me bless you. I just want you to receive the blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you, and may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May he give you peace, and may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. If you need prayer, we have prayer team available. Heaven glorious, and the heavens shall declare.